Titus chapter 1. What we'd like to do is we want to pick up our study of the book of Titus. We have been looking at the traits of authentic spiritual leaders and leadership in the church. Now, every church has leaders. But what are these leaders to look like? What are they to do? What skills must they have? What sort of maturity must be developed in their lives? Uh, Let me tell you. The spiritual health of the leaders in your church, in our church, are critical to the well-being of church. Because, you know, like it says, as go the leaders, so go the people. If you have folks that are not concerned about spiritual matters at all, they're more concerned about their own agenda, they haven't developed spiritually, maybe they don't even know Christ, but they find themselves in position of leadership, it is going to wreak havoc among the church. On the other hand, if you've got mature, godly People involved in spiritual leadership, your church can thrive even in the midst of disarray, theologically or otherwise. And so what is what are the characteristics or traits of healthy leadership? I mean, what are what exactly do you look for? Well, that is exactly what the book of Titus is addressing in the first chapter. He's talking about what spiritual leaderships are to do and to be what they're to look like and how what skills they're to have. And. The leaders are really to be the models for everyone in the church. They are to exemplify what Jesus Christ is to is seeking to develop in every single believer. They are to epitomize. You should be able to point and look at your spiritual leaders, not that they're perfect, but that they have a perfect savior and they have grown to a pretty significant degree of maturity in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's doing. Paul is writing a letter to Titus. He has sent him to the island of Crete. It's in the Mediterranean. There's about 100 cities. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, he says, For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. That word means to place like a physician would set a bone that is broken, like has a compound fracture. You carefully, skillfully, you set that bone in place. Well, that's what Titus is to do. You've got all these brand new churches. You have folks that have come out of blatant paganism, perhaps out of Judaism. Some of them are involved in some very significant immorality. What happens is when you believe in Jesus Christ, he cleanses you and he starts transforming you from within. There are things that are absolutely positionally true of you. You can never lose your salvation. You are always his, that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But he wants you then to experience practically practical holiness in your life. And you start to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's to do. You're going to go and on these on this island, you set in order what remains and appoint elders. Okay, and that's the term that the scriptures in the New Testament use for those who are going to be serving as the head under the head shepherd of Christ in, in the church. And so you're to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so then he's going to talk about what leadership looks like. Leadership in the church is, first of all, supposed to be fostered and matured in relationships at home. Chapter one, verse six. What kind of guy are you looking to help develop and to identify as a spiritual leader, as an elder? Verse 6, a guy who is above reproach. There's no handle on his life. There's There's no just glaring flaw that everybody's aware of, whether that be in the church or outside of it. And he is to have, he is to be the husband of one wife. He is a one woman man having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. You're looking for a guy who has strong family leadership skills because, frankly, that's what a church is. It is a family, a family of God. And the same skills that a father would have in shepherding his family 
are the ones necessary to shepherd a family or a church family. And so that's what he says. You're going to find those kind of guys. And then he starts talking about the character because the strength of a leader is determined by its by his character. And so he talks about certain traits that must be addressed and avoided. Verse seven, things he must not have. He must not be like quick tempered or addicted to wine. He starts listing those things. And then on the converse of the positive side in verse eight, he has to have certain positive traits that need to be developed and manifested in his life. And he spells them out in verse eight. That takes us to verse nine and verse nine lays out a critical skill that every spiritual leader has to have. Okay. And that is the skill of being able to communicate truth. In fact, verse nine, if you wanted just one verse on what spiritual leadership is to do, Titus chapter one, verse nine would probably be your verse because he spells out what is he to do? How, what role, what function does he have in the church? What does spiritual leadership look like? And so he talks about in chapter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, all the way through the rest, verse 16, he is going to emphasize that spiritual leaders have to have the ability to communicate scriptural truth for the purpose of guiding people into spiritual maturity and guarding them from error. And so he's going to basically lay out the, the point that leadership if it's to be done well, requires that you communicate well. Leading well requires communicating well. And so he's going to, in verse 9, just spill out, what does, what does this kind of spiritual leader look like? Well, the first thing is, he has to, just like he talks about in verse 9, he has to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Your spiritual leaders... Those that are concerned about the maturity of God's people, they have to hold fast God's word. And the idea here is that he holds firmly to it. His life is developed. He loves the scriptures. He lives them. He continues to learn and grow on them. He has a heart for the word of God. It, it's part of his life. It, it's kind of like tea. You know, when you make tea, you get those, those tea bags and you put it in the clear water. But what happens is that tea starts just kind of emanating and going all throughout all the water. And it, it actually changes the water. It went from water to now it's tea. It's been steeped. Well, that's what you want for spiritual leadership. That's what God wants for every single one of his people. That his word regularly is making entrance into your life and it is leaving a flavor distinctly of him, of holiness, of what he calls for, of what godliness, what it means to be in Jesus Christ. And you just regularly spend time in his word. And as you do, you find yourself holding fast. It shapes your understanding. It shapes your beliefs, your values, your attitudes. And it is to, it's meant to actually change your behavior, that you live differently. And so what happens is you come to a point where you realize, I am a miserable sinner, and Christ is the perfect, absolute righteous Savior, and you place your faith in him, and you grow in your relationship as you spend time in prayer and in his word. God gives you all sorts of experiences where his word comes into play, and over time you mature, and your leaders, they have to be known as holding fast this word. It's kind of like when Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Timothy, you want to not only be this yourself, but cultivate this in the lives of others, 
men and women who can skillfully use this word. Just like a workman knows what to do and how to use his tools, that's what you want to be. Now, I've shared this before, so this is this is kind of commonly known, but I'm not really skilled with tools. And um, this was actually accentuated again last night. Uh, I had a little problem in the boys' bathroom, and I, I'm like, I'm going to do it. I, I went and did a little search on the Internet, and I watched a video of a guy fixing the sink. And I'm like, oh, I can do it. And I'm like, oh, that was great. I, I, I stopped at the store, picked up what I needed. After multiple tries, I, I think I had it right. I mean, the sink was running, and we had no more dripping, right? Well, that was until we came home last night. I was, I was actually was taking some time to pray through my message and think through the text. And, and the boys come running in like, Dad, we got water running out of our bathroom. Like, what? Oh, my goodness. And sure enough, I don't know what I have done. I have managed to cut the water out, but I have water everywhere. Good thing all their towels went underneath there. They are completely soaked. Now, I, I used tools, but obviously I think, I think what I did is I must have tightened something too tight, and I've got a water issue. But I'm not overly skilled at using those tools. And hence, none of you are inviting me over like, Grant, i got a problem. Do you think you can come over? Like, sure, I'll be over. i got my five tools. I'll help you. Because... I'm I'm not really successful in that category. I, I keep trying, and I make more problems, and I keep plumbers employed and things like that. But when it comes to the Word of God, we have to be skilled in using the Scriptures. The only way that will ever happen is if you spend time in it. You have to know what the Word of God says. You have to have a plan, a plan that works for you, so that God's Word becomes a part of your life. And it could be anything. I mean, you could read it in the morning, maybe at your lunchtime, maybe at night, but find something that works for you. Maybe you read a book multiple times, maybe you try to read just a passage a day, maybe you read one psalm, one proverb, but you've got to find a time where you're in the Word. Maybe you say, you know, each month I'd like to read one of the Gospels. Or some of you say, I'd like to read through the New Testament. It could be done in a month. And you could, and you say, I'd like to do it. But you find a time. If you come to church and worship regularly here at Fellowship, you're going to get a pretty good working knowledge of the scriptures because we're always going through them. Or you could find like an age-appropriate Bible for your kids. And you kind of just, you go through it. Like I just finished with our kids, we went through this read and grow picture Bible. Okay? And it's really cool. I mean, you could see all these things in pictures and, and it's helpful for them. It's helpful for me. But you're, what's happening is you're continually saturating your life with the scriptures, with the word of God. You can become a part of a fellowship family. Hey, folks, there's a bunch of Bible studies that are getting started this week. Why not be a part of one? It's an excellent opportunity for you to be in the word. Matt just got done speaking of like the fact we're going to try to memorize scripture as a church. Why don't you do it? And what happens is that the word of God becomes a part of your life. But then you not only, you actually know what it says, but you think about it. How does it apply? You think about how does this apply? God, why did you write this? And what is it that I can learn? And you, as you understand that, you believe it and you apply it to your life by the power of his spirit. I remember uh, being at a retreat and they had Howard Hendricks and his wife, Jeannie, and they were actually doing an interview with this couple. Uh, a godly, godly, oldie, older couple that God has used significantly. And I remember well, a question was asked, and Jeannie responded on her patterns of studying the Scripture. And what she does is she has a pattern that she goes through each day, but she says that if there's issues that I'm facing or something I'm really struggling with, I go to familiar passages that I know will address that, and I will spend some time there. But you see, she was holding fast the Word, This became a significant part of her life. Her life could not then be separated from the scriptures because the scriptures were always in it. And so that's what you want to do. You want to be so familiar with the truth. 
I, I can assure you, as a, a new Christian in college, the Bible was complete foreign territory. I couldn't tell you the names of the, book of the books of the Bible. I didn't know their order. I didn't know anything in them. I am continually trying to involve myself in the process of learning and spending time in the Word of God. We want to be holding fast the Word. You know, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you want life? Do you want your spiritual life revived, renewed, strengthened? Do you want to be a spiritual leader that can truly have influence in the lives of other people? It all gets started with your relationship and fellowship with him. And he says, hold fast the word. Now, there's a second trait in verse 9 that you've got to see about spiritual leaders. Not only are they growing personally in the word, but they are guiding people to maturity. Spiritual leaders isn't it's like, well, you're an elder and that's a title, and it's, it's sure nice that you have that title, but you don't really do anything. Uh-uh. Notice what the text says. Not, you're to be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, just as the apostles presented it, for this purpose, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. You have the ability to exhort in sound doctrine. Now, that word exhort, parakaleo, it actually means to come alongside. I want you to, sometimes you get the idea of exhort, and you got some guy like, he's just, ah, ah, he's yelling at you or something like that. Uh-uh. That's not what this word means. It means to literally come alongside. You know, the Holy Spirit is referred to, Jesus says, he is the helper. He's the parakletos. It's, it's the uh, same form, it's the uh, noun form of that verb. He is the one who comes alongside. What does the Holy, what does he do in our life? He guides us into all truth. He causes us to remember. He is in us and he leads us. He guides us. We can rely upon him. That is what your elders and spiritual leaders do. They come alongside people and help them grow in the knowledge of God's word and how God's word applies in their life. It's done on a one-on-one basis, sometimes in a small group. With couples, maybe in a medium-sized group, perhaps even in a large-sized group like this. That is what spiritual leaders do. They involve themselves in the lives of people, and they help them grow into maturity in Christ. They address issues, problems they're facing. They encourage health, growth, maturity. They challenge. They lay it out there. That's what they do. It's very much uh, like what Jesus spoke of to, to John, uh, Peter excuse me, in John 21. And, and we're going to talk about that. But if you want to know what this looks like, chapters 2 and 3 are, are what, what he's supposed to be doing. In terms of guiding people to maturity, chapters 2 and 3 of Titus is doing just that. But what, Peter, what uh, Titus is supposed to do is like what Jesus told Peter. I want you to tend my Lambs. I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to tend my sheep. Remember, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then what do you say? I want you to tend my lambs. I want you to feed them. It has the idea of nourishing, caring, providing for. And he asked him a second time, hey, do you really love me? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you, you know I love you. You know what I want you to do? I want you to shepherd my sheep. I want you to guide them. I want you to help them. And then Jesus, remember, he asked him a third time, do you really love me? And and Peter says, you know, you know all things. He says, Jesus said this, what I want you to do, I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed them 
and lead them. I want you to guide them and guard them. I want you to protect them. I want you to rescue them. I want you to lead them. What Jesus was telling Peter is, I want you to adopt my way of doing ministry. They had seen it firsthand. Remember, they had lived with Jesus for about three years. They saw him involved in people's life, especially in their own life. They could ask him questions. He presented truth. Jesus would ask them questions. Jesus modeled how to live. He prayed. He endured persecution. He took the heat. He'd take his guys away on retreats and at times for spiritual renewal. He taught. He did things. He healed. He spoke the gospel. He'd preach in front of adversity. And what he's saying is, I want you to lead people like I have led you. I gave you an example for you to follow. You saw how I loved you, even at the point of utter, complete sacrifice for you. I want you to love and lead people the exact same way. Titus, Paul writes, I want you to find men who are going to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. That word exhort, come alongside. And notice what he's supposed to exhort them with. Sound doctrine. Uh, that, that word there, sound, is ugiano. It's where we get the word hygiene from. It means pure, unmixed with air. It leads to health. You give them healthy words, God's words, that are going to provide health and maturity in their life. And so that's what spiritual leaders do. They are personally studying and involved in God's word for the purpose of guiding people into spiritual maturity. So if you are a spiritual leader, you're, let's say you're a parent, okay, a lot of you, grandparent, you're leading a Bible study, you're mentoring someone one-on-one, one-on-two, you've got a Sunday school class, there's, there's folks of you that are leading, uh, speaking in prisons, uh, some of you are actually speaking in nursing homes, we have chaplains in our church that speak to large numbers of our military, you know what you need to do? You need to give them the word, and you cannot give what you do not have. So you hold fast the faithful word, and you teach it. And then there's a third thing that spiritual leaders to do. And notice what he says in verse 9. You hold fast the faithful word so that you will be able both to exhort, come alongside with sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. You see, you have to be able to guard believers from error. And he is going to, in the remaining part of chapter 1, talk about significant errors that were creeping in. Because any time you have the establishment of truth, where God's word is going forth and is being established, you have what is called erosion. You know, like erosion, like wind erosion or water erosion, it starts wearing away. And if it's not dealt with, you can lose all of your good farmland. You can lose all the good land alongside the river unless erosion is dealt with. And that's what he's saying. You have to, spiritual leaders must be able to do just like the text says, refute those who contradict. And let me assure you, like Paul is telling Titus, these dangers are many. Look what he says, verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. There are many who are false teachers. They are telling and promoting Things that are not true about God, about life, that are not in keeping with God's revealed word. They are, notice what he calls them. He says they are rebellious. 
False teachers refuse to set themselves under the word of God or any authority that God has established. They're not only rebellious, they defy connection, but they are empty talkers. They got a lot of, lot of line that they're feeding people, and they're talking a lot. But they cannot deliver because they themselves are devoid of actual, authentic, genuine spiritual truth. They are empty talkers. Their mouth may be running 100 miles an hour, but they cannot deliver true, authentic spirituality and what it means to walk with God because they themselves are deceived. In fact, he says they are, they are deceptive. Do you see that there? In verse, uh, in their deceivers in verse 10, they have, they are, they're off track. And they want you to buy in. And he said, especially those of the circumcision. And this was a significant problem in the early church. For all the times that you've read through the New Testament, you will notice how often letters are meant to address problems. And one of the significant problems emerging in churches were that the Jews said, well, if you're going to become a Christian where Christ is your Messiah, he is a Jewish Messiah, then you've got to become Jewish first. You've got to follow the rituals, the ceremonies, the regulations. You've got to, in essence, be Jewish before you could ever be a Christian. And this created serious havoc. In fact, there was a letter written, you can find it in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles got together. They heard about all these problems in which these Judaizers, they were trying to make infiltration in the church and creating all this havoc in the church. They wrote a letter saying, "Uh uh-uh. You do not have to become Jews to become Christians. We become believers in Christ. We become Christians through faith. We trust in Jesus Christ in his person, in his atoning work that he actually paid for the penalty for our sins. And we find ourselves united by faith with Christ. You do not become a Christian by showing up at a church. By going through rituals, following a list of regulations, all these do's and all these don'ts. And as long as I can keep my list going and maybe you you add a few other things that you need to do to kind of earn merit and favor with God. That's not biblical Christianity. That is a works oriented righteousness. And it's been around for a long time. And the Judaizers were majorly into that. They were very good at following rules and very good at looking down at anybody that couldn't. This was a serious issue, and that's why he highlights there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. The dangers of false teachers are many, and the devastation they bring is real. Look at verse 11. Who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. You've got to silence them. You have to appoint men elders who can actually get in the game stand up and say this is not right this is not in keeping with the teaching that we hold fast to you've got to have people that can involve yourself involve themselves with other people so they can guide them from these kind of errors because the dangers are great and the devastation they bring is real and notice what he says they are upsetting whole Families. Families are not only the building blocks of society, they play a key role in the church. And so this is what they do. And this, by the way, still happens. You go after a small group, like a family. It could be like door to door, and oftentimes the early church is met in homes. And so if you go if you if you have, let's say, a false belief system, or you're holding some false doctrines, erroneous doctrines, what they do is they focus on a small number. 
like a family. Because, frankly, you're less likely to run into someone who's going to be grounded enough to say, "Uh uh-uh. And these people can be rather persuasive, and so they were. And they were creating havoc among families. They were causing dissension, causing them to break down, causing them to believe things that were not true about God. And so let me just give you some distinctions of false teachers. Um, So you can recognize them. They're going to be focused more attention on themselves and their spiritual experiences and that God told them this rather than Christ. And that was true back then. True today. Uh, They are going to ask you to do things that will compromise or dilute your faith or they'll or they'll especially they'll de-emphasize the nature of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Or they will try to cut away at the inspiration and the inerrancy of God's word. Give me some other characteristics. They will they'll divide believers False teachers, they seek to make entrance, and what they do, it's, it's the idea they want to create division. And it's kind of like, will you follow me and all my truth that I've convinced you of? Or are you going to go with them, the rest of the church? And they create this idea that they're dividing and they're conquering. They create splits. They create wedges. And so they'll divide believers with being quarrelsome or some sort of contentious teaching. And then they're going to urge believers to make decisions based more upon human judgment rather than God's revealed word and prayer. And notice what he says in verse 11. I don't want you to miss this. They do these things, they teach these things, which they should not, for the sake of sordid gain. They want to gain adherence. You see, anytime someone will come alongside and say, yeah, you're right, yeah, Jesus isn't God, or yeah, we could never get to heaven, or yes, we do need to follow all these rules and rituals, What happens is it reinforces in the false teacher, like, that's right, I'm right. It kind of builds them up. It has a multiplying effect in their life. And furthermore, when it talks about sordid gain, not only it's gaining adherence, but they very well may profit from this. Because if they can get people to follow them, they probably get them to give them their money. And so he says, they've got to be silenced. And not only is the destruction of false teachers great, But I want you to know that their deception runs deep. Look at verse 12. He says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now that, you see that quote there, verse 12? That comes from a guy by the name of Epimenides. He existed about 600 years before Christ. He actually was a native from the island of Crete. So he was an authority on his own people. And this is what he said, this is of my kind, my ilk, this is what they're like. And I don't know if this is on their welcome sign to the island or not, but he said this, Cretans are always liars, They're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons. In fact, in the Greek and Roman world, to Cretanize meant to lie or to steal. And these people had such habits, such a history of lying and stealing and conniving and ripping people off, that they actually had a word named after them, Cretanize. To Cretanize, to lie, 
to steal. That's what they did. They had a long history of doing it. They were compulsive liars. They were evil beasts. They functioned on their gross, indulging their gross passions, and they were lazy gluttons. They were basically allergic to work, and they said this testimony is true. They have a long history. This island especially has a long history of fostering people who rip other people off. They've got to be dealt with. Is testimony is true, verse 13? They've got to be reproved. This has to be cut back. And so that they may be sound in the faith. These people that are teaching and promoting this false, these false doctrines, ideally, you want them to be sound, healthy, hygienic in the faith. You want them to experience true spirituality. They may be sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. They're paying attention, like he says, verse 14, to, to Jewish myths, like if you do all these things, you earn favor with God or, or right with, you become right with God and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And that's really the nature of false teaching. It is to get you to believe or do anything that is contrary to the scriptures. And it's oftentimes to get you into a system where you're always trying to work to earn favor with God. But I've got news for you. Aren't you glad we're done with all that? I mean, the church has been around for 2,000 years now. And yes, there were some very serious errors in that early church, but praise God, no more problems, right? We have now really come along. We have truly taken God at his word. There is purity in our midst, and we have spiritual leaders that are coming alongside. They're encouraging, and they have done a fine job of making sure that error never makes its entrance into the church. Is that what you're thinking? If you are... I have some things that I want to tell you, and you're going to find them unsettling. Uh, you'll remember, it's actually one month ago, okay? There was a major study released. There was one from the Pew Research Center's Forum on Religion and Public Life. They did a major study on Americans and what they believe. Many of you read it. It was, in, it was pretty much in every newspaper. It was on the web. You really couldn't have missed it. But in case you did, I want you just to hear some of the findings. They, they have discovered that a large number of Americans engage in multiple religious practices, mixing elements of diverse traditions. And they also found that many also blend Christianity with Eastern and New Age beliefs. Okay? So you're like, well, yeah, I guess that's kind of America. I mean, we're somewhat protected in Texas. But let me assure you, if you ever took a vacation outside of the state of Texas, and not like you have to, I understand, but if you ever did, let me assure you that there's some pretty wild, weird stuff out of there. Take a trip to the Northwest. You will think you've entered, at least spiritually, into a completely foreign country. But these, the findings that are so shocking is what they found out about Christians. Ready? They found that 22% of Christians say they believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is the idea that a person is born and reborn and over and over and over and he keeps making entrance into this world again and again and again. They found in their study, 22% of Christians believe that. Now, they also found that uh, among the uh, American public as a whole, that 25% of the people believe in astrology, okay? Uh, the idea that the position of stars and planets can affect people's lives. So you go to the grocery store and you see all that astrological stuff, and you're like, who in their right mind would buy all that stuff? 25% of Americans would because they believe it, okay? There's a reason why they're like, oh, I think I'll find out what my horoscope is, right? I wonder if I should go for my job interview today or tomorrow. And so you're like consulting a newspaper, you're looking at astrological signs. Oh, there I am. 
How do I read it? Oh, I've got to stay in my house all day, but tomorrow I can go out. Okay, I want you to know that 25% of Americans believe that. All right? Well, here's the good news. Only 23% of the Christians believe in astrology. Do you hear that? From this study, they found that 23% of Christians hold to astrology, that the positioning of stars and planets has bearing into their life. Another thing they found, uh, part of their study that they revealed, 16% of Americans believe in what is called the evil eyes, this, that certain people can cast spells or curses on people. Okay? You find this uh, in some sects of Muslims, Muslim faith. Uh, there's a lot of African beliefs that are associated with this. Even parts of Judaism have this idea of the evil eye, that someone can cast spells. Listen to this. One in ten evangelicals, those who believe that you must believe the gospel, the authority of God's word, there's personal conversion. One in ten evangelicals who attends church weekly, okay, they believe in the evil eye. They believe there's people that can truly cast spells. Okay, now let me just give you some more examples of theological chaos that is making its way in the church. Uh, this happened just a, a few months ago in August. There is a group of folks, they're, they're called Emergent Christians, okay? And they are led by some different pastors. One of the most significant of their pastors is by the, a guy by the name of Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren, according to Time Magazine, is one of the top to- 25 evangelicals in the United States, okay? So he is a leading evangelical. He leads a movement of people, of Christians, to do this to celebrate and observe the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Okay? And according to Brian McLaren's own blog, this is what he announced. Quote, We, as Christians, humbly seek to join Muslims in this observance of Ramadan as a God-honoring expression of peace, fellowship, and neighborliness. Neighborliness. Okay? Now, it should have been neighborlessness, but it's neighborliness. Okay? He is, he's saying, we're doing this. This month where they recognize when Muhammad received the Quran, that they can actually earn favor with God by doing good deeds that month. We Christians, we're going to join them in this, this observance of Ramadan. You know what's happening? What's happening is that we are treating our faith like a playlist. We are customizing it like we do our iPhones. We are basically setting it up to be whatever we like. You pick and you choose and you add what you want and you just ignore or disregard other things. And what is happening is that you have in this build-your-own-religion approach, you have synchronized Christianity, where it is being messed truth with error, falsehood from that which is real, and it's leading to major spiritual confusion. And let me tell you the end result. Millions will face a Christless eternity because they never entered into authentic relationship with God because the Christians had so confused and deluded and distorted the message. That is why we need spiritual leaders. Let me give you another group of people that very much want full entrance into the church. They want you to consider themselves Christians. They are the Mormons. They identify themselves as Christians. They had a major boon when the 2002 Winter Olympics were held there. The Mormons went to pretty much every length to create the illusion that Mormonism is mainstream. And they, you talk to a Mormon, are you a Christian? Absolutely. Of course I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. But you've got to get down to what do Mormons really believe? 
are they Christians and they just have a few different things and they just all be around? They started off in Salt Lake and they got a big temple and I can't go to it. Or what, what, what is actually at the core of Mormon police? This you may find shocking, but you ought to know this. Mormons, for instance, if you want to find out what they believe, they believe that there is more than one God. They believe that Jesus Christ is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Ever read that in your scriptures? I don't think so. They believe that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones, completely against the definition of God in the scriptures. They believe that, and this is going to be alarming, that Jesus Christ was born as a result of sexual intercourse between God the Father and Mary. Is that what happened? I don't think so. They believe that God the Father was once man. They believe that you can become gods of your own planet. I had my Mormon neighbor, when I asked him, we had a real good discussion one night, tell me, and I asked him, do you think that you can become a god? And he said, as that sweat dripped down his brow, he said, yes. They believe it absolutely. They uh, believe that, um, uh, that Jesus Christ was a polygamist. And that Mary and Martha were among his wives. Is that what the scriptures teach? Absolutely not. you got folks like Jehovah Witnesses. And they show up and they all dress real nice. And they've got some magazines. They have some things for you to read in all your free time. Awake magazine and the Watchtower magazine. And yet they completely deny that Jesus is God. They say, oh, no, no, he's not God. He's the son of God. That means he's less than God. Even though Jesus made it perfectly clear he was God. He is God, and that's why they actually wanted to kill him and stone him. You see, anytime you are mixing truth with air, you've got deception taking place, and it cannot be in the church. And you know what the church needs? We need spiritual leaders that can actually discern and say, uh-uh, I'm holding fast to the word, and what you're saying isn't in it. And I'm sorry, let me show you what true faith is, what Orthodox Christianity really is. You know, I found a, a statement that was extremely revealing. I think a lot of you know what's been taking place in the Episcopal Church. Okay? I mean, it is, just, it is just fragmenting. And there was a pretty interesting situation that happened a few years ago when they, uh, they decided that they were going to have their first openly gay bishop. Okay, his name is Gene Robinson. And they were going to ordain him and set him apart as the bishop of New Hampshire, even though he was openly gay and he was he's actually he lives with his partner. Okay, well, uh, they had 60, 60 Episcopal bishops actually approved and voted that, yes, this man is fit to be recognized as the spiritual leader of New Hampshire and the Episcopal churches. One of those guys was a guy by the name of Peter James Lee. He's one of the bishops that gave his approval. He made this statement, and I want you to listen very closely to what he said. Quote, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism. Heresy is to believe something that is completely contrary to the revealed word of God. It's not orthodox. Or schism, some sort of formal break. If you must make a choice between heresy and schism, this is what he said. Always choose heresy. Friends, and you've got folks like this who are involved in spiritual leadership. You've got a church that is going to tank and fall apart and break down. And you're going to send millions of people away with, the false, with a false belief about what it means to really know God. You know what we need? We need some Christian leaders who have their head in the game. 
who take the role spiritual, of spiritual leadership seriously. They hold fast to truth. They are involved in helping people mature, and they are guarding people from error. Anytime you are adding to the truth, subtracting from it, wrongly dividing it, or multiplying it by zero, you know what you've got? You have error. That math problem leads to theological crisis and chaos. And so what does Paul say? Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. To the pure, those who are pure, their ministries, their motives, their mindset, it's going to be right. But to those who are tainted and are believing false things, nothing is pure, but both their mind, their organ for understanding, and their conscience. It's that warning system that guides you into right and wrong. It's they're defiled. They say, verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. False teachers say they know God, and they want, to, they want you to follow him like they are, but they're wrong, and they'll lead you astray. They can say what they want outside of the body of Christ, but they cannot have entrance into leadership in a church. Otherwise, they'll completely lead them astray. What do we need? He concludes chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, you speak the things which are fitting for healthy, sound doctrine. You identify elders who can do the same so that the churches may grow and be healthy because apart from that, it's going to be a crisis for the church. But if a church has godly leaders, a church can thrive grow, mature, experience the fullness of Christ. It can truly be a beacon of light in the midst of a dark world. And that's what we need. I hope you get the impression that an elder, a spiritual leader, is more than a guy who cuts checks periodically, checks the sprinkler system, and, uh, you know, just makes sure things are just kind of generally flowing. No, a godly leader is one who is involved in the spiritual life of the church. And you know what skill he's got to have? He's got to be able to communicate. Because leading well requires communicating well. And you know what, friends, we need? We need the real deal. I believe that God is raising up a lot of godly leaders, especially in our church, because it's evident. You look at the men and the women who are growing and actually are concerned about the well-being of other people. You look at different folks that are taking steps of growth and of faith who can come alongside, who can exhort, who can work with a person whose life is a little bit messed up and help them get on the straight path of walking with God, who are encouraging, challenging, motivating, involved in the lives of other people, discipling individuals, mentoring, taking steps of leadership. This is what the church needs. This is what it's to cultivate. And what Paul says to Titus, he says, you know, there's a lot of folks going a lot of wrong directions. But for you, you teach sound doctrine and you find others who can do the same. May this continue to be the reality in our church. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the clarity of your word. I thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your church. And like Jesus said, you said you'd build your church and you're doing it worldwide here at Fellowship, in other churches in this city, in their community, in Texas, the United States, throughout the world, India, Yugoslavia, Norway, England, places in Africa, 
Your church is being developed and growing and built. There are believers around the world that are meeting, that are standing strong for the word, that are involved in the lives of, of other people to help them mature spiritually. And they are guarding from all sorts of error because it is so very prevalent. So, Lord, would you, we'd ask, always protect the purity of our church. May we have pure doctrine and pure motives and pure ministry. May we be a beacon of light. May we be a fountain of praise to you. You are the God of our salvation. We worship you and we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.